welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I hope I can offer some, you know, new and interesting perspective to uh, this show. Well, you, uh, you've helped me understand a few things about medical education. And even though it's hasn't been that long since I was a medical student, um, it, uh, it feels like there's a lot I don't know still. So first of all, can you just tell me why, why did you go into medicine? Why did you choose medical school? Man, I think that's an interesting answer for a lot of different people, uh, different reasons for different people. But I had just had good experiences as a teenager seeing uh, medical professionals for really, it was honestly, I had really bad acne as a teenager, but uh-huh. my, the doctor I saw made I'm me feel, you, yeah, right. I feel you. <laughs> we all go through it. Um, and he made me feel so comfortable and secure at a time when I was feeling very insecure about that. And so I thought, man, this would be really cool if I could do something like this for people in the future. Of course, at that time, I was very naive to what went into becoming a doctor Uh and everything in the medical field. Um, So as I went into college, I looked into that as a career path and the pieces just kind of came together that I was interested in science and physics and all that stuff I had to do. And I had an interest in health and wellness and just kind of pursued it from there. Cool. Well, a lot of people know this, but how how long does it take to become a doctor? Yeah. So I get that question all the time still from people, but you have your four-year degree in undergrad you have to do. And then after you get that degree, you have four years of medical school. And then when you graduate medical school, you still have, depending on the specialty you choose, you might have as short as three years of residency up to maybe... I don't know, seven or eight years if you're doing neurosurgery, but the average residency is four years. So that would be four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, and then about four years of residency. Okay. So we're talking about like 11 years minimum to finish medical training. Minimum. Yeah. 11 years. That's a big chunk of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, <laughs> it's an important chunk of your life because it's most of your twenties and into your thirties. So yeah, yeah it's so a you- time. You're like 25 now, so you must have started when you were 14 or something yeah. like that. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, not quite. Um, I'm a little bit older than 25, but okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so with all of this investment that you're, you are putting into your future and to your, your future ability to help other people, how, how do you think that the type of education that you are getting now is influencing the type of doctor you will become in the future? Who? That's a tough one because I, I myself try to have my own vision in my head of the type of doctor I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I try not to let too many outside things influence that as best I can. But it definitely does affect you because... Let me pause you there for yeah. just a second because I want to hear about what kind of a doctor you want to be like in your head when you say i have a, a type of doctor i want to be what is that what does that look like yeah i think it's a doctor that most people wish they had really i want to be a resource for my patients and i think people are missing that these days i want to be a doctor that cares about people and cares about his patients and really helps them find solutions to their, their health care problems instead of uh, putting a band-aid on their problems and just covering up with symptom relief. Um, And so I don't know if I always get that education in school. Uh, Yeah. So let me, let me talk to you about what some other people said about what it means to be a good doctor, because just yesterday or the day before I posted on LinkedIn and Facebook, um, I said, uh, describe a good doctor in three words. Let me just read you what some of the answers were. Um, So somebody said, um, expert diagnostician and empathetic 
Um, somebody else said empathetic, knowledgeable, not jaded. Somebody else said uh, expertise, communication, empathy, uh, trustworthy, empathetic, available. Um, so empathy keeps coming up over and over again. Over and over. Um, expertise keeps coming up over and over again. So do you think empathy has anything to do with you taking time to educate a patient? Because I saw a quote once that I love that just said, you know, a doctor is only as good as, it, as how they can educate their patient. Yeah, I think that uh, you are totally right. Is there there has got to be a certain amount of time, right, in order to to develop some empathy? You know, I don't know if I'm an expert on on what that amount of time is. Like, is there a three minute uh, time minimum to you know have an empathetic relationship with a patient? I'm not I'm not sure about yeah. that. But um, so so let's stick with empathy to start with then. How how do you feel like medical your medical training is teaching empathy to you? Hmm. I would say I get a lackluster training in empathy. It's it's one of these things that we talk about. And wait a second, this is like the top thing that people are looking for. <laughs> yeah. This is the first thing that you said, and and you're not being trained in empathy. Uh, not specifically. No, okay. no. I mean, it's one of those things that, so I'll give you a, a good example. We do these things where you go see a fake patient and when uh -huh. you're a first and second year medical student and they're a paid actor and they're pretending to be sick. And when we go see them, you know, there's a point on that grading rubric where someone's watching you see this actor and they grade uh -huh. you. And there's a point on there for empathy. And that basically consists of when the person fake cries and says, oh, I have a lot of stress in my life. You saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, okay. work, work is really tough. Hopefully we can. I've graded some of those yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> and that's your empathy training from my perspective is just acknowledging that they're stressed about something and moving on. So, you know, and, and I'm not going to be an expert on whether or not there's something more that we can do, but it does, it does seem like an important question, right? Like what are we doing to train the uh, train the doctors of the future to develop some of the characteristics that we are saying are the most important characteristics. And um, this is a part that you haven't gotten to yet that uh, that I have been able to experience, which is residency. And it feels to me like residency almost was designed to beat empathy out of me. <laughs> um, you know, if I'm just picturing this one shift, 72 hours of of staying in the hospital and, you know, basically no sleep during that whole time period. And I'm supposed to really care about these patients that are going through um, hard times. And all I can think about is getting a nap and a sandwich. So uh, we'll talk more about that after the break, but you are listening to the healthcare questions show sponsored by arc family health on 1100 KFNX, the pulse of Arizona. Hello, and welcome back to the Healthcare Questions Show. I'm your host, Dr. Kendrick, and I'm here with Kyle Sherwin, a medical student who's teaching us about medical education. Thanks again for being here, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been talking about how uh, medical education sometimes uh, fails to teach some of the most important things that we are looking for in a doctor, which is empathy, uh, compassion. Um, but what what do we learn in medical school? You know, what, what is medical, what are the contents of medical education? 
Yeah, so your first two years are strictly classroom-type learning, okay. uh, going over, le- listen to lectures, taking tests, mm-hmm. and all that. And that consists of all your biomedical sciences, right? Uh, biochemistry, anatomy, pathology, pharmacology, microbiology. Uh, so you're really just in-depth in those. And if anyone, p- people listening have taken college before, most people take you know 12 to 15 credits in undergrad. Well, medical school is 26 credits for every quarter that you're in. Okay. So it is a lot coming at you for two years. Um, and then third and fourth year of medical school is when you go on your clinical rotations and you get out of the classroom and you actually go around working with physicians in the field, spending time with family medicine, OB-GYN, psychiatry, surgery, all the different specialties out there. And those, those last for a month each. So you're spending your time in the first couple of years learning kind of basic sciences and then and then like the the bookwork of pharmacology and pathology. So like you're learning about the drugs, you're learning about the diseases. And um, how much how much time during those first couple of years are you learning about nutrition and exercise and behavior change? Oh, almost none. Nutrition, I think I had three hours of lecture on nutrition um, and very almost none on how you would implement that, how you would actually get behavior change in an individual. So you think that's probably because that's not that important or what? Uh, t- tell me why, why that's not uh, included in, in a major part of medical school. You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure why it's not. I think Let's it's just hope your teachers aren't listening. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think I think it's a sad thing that it's probably not seen as uh-huh. super important. And, you know, we have to you do have to know all the diseases and how they develop and how to diagnose them. And that knowledge base is so vast that right. I think it just has overtaken every part of it because you know, I had three total hours of nutrition my first year, but in my second year, I had multiple hundreds of hours of pathology lecture in a year. And that's to cover all these disease processes and how they develop and how they present. So, so do you remember, do you remember all of the stages of the Krebs cycle? Can you like, (laughs) can you like recite them for me right now? Yeah, good one. No, I, there's no chance. (laughs) Okay. So the, the Krebs cycle, for those of you who haven't heard of the Krebs cycle is, um, is a, a pathway of chemical reactions in the body, right? It's, it's a pretty important one. Like it's in, it's involved in, in where we get energy from in our body. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but you had to memorize that at some point, right? Yeah, correct. Every enzyme, every intermediate, all the the whole, and it's it's hard to describe if you can't see, but it's a circle with about five different intermediates and six different enzymes showing you how these things break down in the body. Yeah, so there's there's a there's a lot of steps to the to this whole thing, and there's a lot of really long names that you have to remember, and you have to remember how many different uh, ATP molecules come out of each step. And um, the reason I'm, I'm getting into this, everybody's probably like tuning off right now, but the reason I'm getting into this is you, were, you had to memorize that just within the last couple of years. I, yeah. rem- I remember memorizing it uh, you know, in medical school, but I can't tell you like hardly any of it right now. And so I'm just wondering a little bit, do you do you think and we're probably not the sm- we're probably not smart enough to answer this question here but <laughs> do our best do you think that um that learning that krebs cycle has a lot to do with actually practicing medicine 
No, in that instance, no. I think it. there is something to be said for understanding. Now that, we're really going to get in trouble yeah. <laughs> with your teachers, right? <laughs> I think there is something to be said for understanding the underlying processes of how your body functions yeah. and what normal should be. Uh, we talk about this homeostasis, you know, your body always is trying to come back to a place of uh, regulation and health. But it's good to understand those. But as far as when I'm implementing a diet or a new medication or something to a patient, the Krebs cycle is the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah, it's interesting because I was actually having this conversation with my son yesterday. We were we were cleaning, uh, you know, cleaning in the backyard, and he was talking about Latin and like he's like, Dad, you know, I'm trying to have a good attitude about Latin, but I'm really having a hard time <laughs> seeing, you know, how it's going to help me in my career someday. And I was like, um. Yeah, no, it's super helpful. Like Latin, you, you're gonna need a, you're gonna need some Latin, and uh, it was it was hard for me to to come up with a really convincing answer. You know, of course, what I what I did tell him was, uh, hey, I don't know, maybe maybe you it's not helping, or maybe it is. However, it could potentially be helping you learn how to learn. Do you think that's still? Uh, first of all, do you think that's a valid comment? Like you, you can comment on my parenting skills here, <laughs> um, but uh, do you do you also think that could potentially apply to what you're doing in medical school? Yeah, I won't comment on your parenting skills because okay, I don't I don't you. have kids, so I won't. <laughs> but uh, you, I think there is something to be said for that because that's that goes back even in undergrad. People sit there and say, "Well, why do I have to take trigonometry to get into medical school and stuff?" I think there is a something to be said for learning how to learn, but mm-hmm. When we, at that point, most people that get into medical school are already expert learners. We've got good grades. We did great on tests in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And then with how much is on your plate in medical school to learn and to consume, I don't know if there's a benefit of these small things that are for the sake of learning. Yeah. You know, you, you've, you've had so much learning to do already. Yeah. Well, we better get away from this topic because I'm, I'm again, not smart enough to answer, you know, exactly how those things affect being a doctor. Um, however, I've got a hunch that the question isn't being asked really well, like whether or not it's important. Like I haven't heard these debates happening. So I wonder if we are asking, you know, should we be spending all of this time on the Krebs cycle or should we maybe ask questions about how much time we should be spending on helping people with their nutrition and exercise and behavior change? Um, so that's, that's a question that I think that we should pose to smarter people than us sometime when we get the, the opportunity. But, but my hunch is that it's not being asked really. So, um, you spent, you spent a lot of time on pharmacology. Do you, do you have a, a sense of like how much time you spent learning different drugs, diseases? Ooh, different drugs. Yeah. So pharmacology, I mean, Donovan, rough estimate, I think we had about five hours a week of lecture and we have about 12 weeks per quarter, and we had three quarters. So, uh, you know, five times 12 times three would be uh, however many hundred that is. That's how many hours we spent doing pharmacology in school. Okay, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of time. So um, so I'm, I'm reading here that there's about 20,000 prescription drugs that are approved by the FDA. Um, and so... If you're going to learn about 20,000 drugs, you're going to have to you're going to have to spend a lot of time 
learning, I guess, yeah. um, about that. Um, I, I think this is another question of, of like what is important um, in my daily practice, I can tell you there's there's about there's about fifty drugs that a family practice doc uses every week. I would say I'm making these numbers up, but the, but they're probably fairly good estimates. You know, I'm not off by a, a factor of ten. Sure. Um, in a year, there are probably uh, there are probably a hundred and fifty drugs, different drugs that I prescribe. No, that's probably too low. Probably like four to five hundred different drugs that I prescribe in a year, and and then I see other drugs come across that other people are prescribing, like specialists are prescribing. But I, I'm guessing I interact with less than a thousand drugs in a year. Sure. Um. And and so there are twenty thousand prescription drugs, and um and many of them I will never see use have any reason. To, to know about. So um, it, it, does, it does make me wonder a little bit in this day when it's so easy to access information about drugs from, uh, from you know, online tools that have all of the drugs there. Right. Um, I don't, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't know some of these things right off the top of our heads, but it does make me wonder like all the, all the time I spent memorizing chemotherapy drugs and um, and things like that, and and now I'm not seeing them hardly at all in practice. Um, do you what What do you think about the value of knowing all of these different drugs? It's a fair point. You know, it, it is tough when you get into some of these specialty drugs like chemotherapy drugs that you will never, unless you're an oncologist, you'll never really prescribe or use. Uh, from a perspective of someone like yours, I think it might be good to know all these different ones from people coming in and being on them. Mm -hmm. And so then you kind of have an idea of why they might be on them or what side effects might be common with these things or how they might interact with each other. Uh, how often we actually take all that into consideration mm -hmm. when we prescribe all these drugs is another story but yeah uh yeah to know you you're never going to know all these off the top of your head you're going to end up using these tools anyways yeah so i guess uh there there are probably some smarter people again out there thinking about in in the future where the number of drugs is going to continue to increase and our accessibility to this information by technology is also going to improve it makes you wonder what are we going to change in healthcare education and health education uh, when we have those two main factors changing? So we'll talk more about that after the, sh after the break. You're listening to the Healthcare Questions Show, sponsored by Arc Family Health at arcfamilyhealth.com on 1100 KFNX, the Pulse of Arizona. Hello and welcome back to the Healthcare Question Show. I'm your host, Dr. Kendrick, and you are listening to the Healthcare Question Show. This is a show where we ask the tough questions about how we can change our culture and the healthcare system to bring about better health. And I'm here with Kyle Sherwin, who's a medical student and a brilliant guy, and he's teaching us a little bit about what it's like to be a medical student and how that affects our healthcare system and the way that healthcare is delivered. And we were talking during the break about this uh, this interesting phase you are in, where you you get to spend 
a lot of time with a lot of different physicians. And that made me think, you know, you actually, you actually are seeing a lot of the underbelly of healthcare and seeing, you know, seeing how, uh, healthcare, uh, providers act and it, it made me wonder do you see a lot of super healthy behavior among healthcare providers like would you say that that uh, doctors are like one of the healthiest groups that you encounter yeah so i see a wide variety i've been on clinical rotations for two years now and so and i'm with a new physician every month mm -hmm. so i have you know i've met many preceptors at this point uh and one thing that am i your favorite one by the way <laughs> Well, no one's ever brought me on their radio show before. We'll <laughs> say that. Um, yes, yes. So, but you know, I have seen a whole host of different people, but I would say the majority are not very healthy and uh -huh. don't exhibit healthy behaviors, especially in the hospital setting. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, you go into a physician's lounge at a hospital and everyone in there is drinking soda, diet Coke, energy drinks, coffee. I mean, coffee's not terrible for you, I guess. And, uh, you know, the food in there is not typically very good. Uh -huh. uh, so, you know, people, you're slammed at the hospital when you get a break, you go down there, grab some crackers and a sandwich and a Diet Coke. So when I, when I have interviewed providers to hire into our practice, you know, I, I don't know how many I've interviewed now, maybe 40, 50 providers that I've interviewed um, to come into the practice. I've asked uh, all of them how um, how they think, how important they think it is to model healthy behavior. And, um, and I get a variety of responses. You know, some people rank that fairly low in terms of like an important thing and some people rank it pretty high. And, um, and honestly, I haven't seen research that would that would necessarily say that that uh, how healthy your doctor is is going to change how healthy you are. But it, but I have to wonder if somebody comes in and um, and I'm telling them to eat a certain way, and or I'm telling them just to just to be good to themselves, and it's really, and I know in my heart that I'm not good to myself. It. It seems uh, it seems like that message is going to be less powerful. Um, have Have you been able to see any difference in communicating a message about uh, healthy behavior depending on how healthy the doctor is? Yeah, I I get your point of you know if you're kind of being a hypocrite yourself, I think that mm -hmm. message just comes across a little differently. Uh, two doctors that come to mind that I was with, they were both in good shape. And when they would counsel people about trying to get in better shape, uh, people would kind of make comments like, oh, well, I bet it's easy for you or you look like it's not a problem. Yeah. And they both would say the one doc I was with said, no, nah, I get up at 5 a.m. every morning to go run. He said, I don't want to do it, but I try to I'm trying to stay in shape. So I got to yeah. do it. I got to sacrifice. And the other one would go. She gave a lot extensive diet advice and she said, I follow this advice myself and it's how I lost 30 pounds and it's why I give people advice. So yeah. they tried to relate to those patients in a way that's like, I'm struggling through it too and uh -huh. I'm doing everything I'm telling you. Um, and, and that worked for me in the past. But you know, other people that if they're not doing that themselves, I don't know if they can relate to the patient in the same way. Yeah. So I've seen some of the statistics and uh, it turns out that uh, the doctors are not the healthiest group out yeah. there. 
um, you know, that uh, compared to the general population, population, they have higher risk of heart disease and cancer and other things. And so, um, at least for at least for a comparable socioeconomic class, um, and so it does it does make me wonder what are we doing in medical education to help support and facilitate a, a healthy lifestyle? Um, and so, what do you see in your medical education that that helps you to be healthier? This was one of my biggest frustrations, especially in first and second year, is we would always get these, you know, if people outside the medical field haven't heard physician burnout is, you know, an epidemic right now and everyone's worried about that. And so they would always kind of throw these qualifiers in there randomly during lecture. You know, you guys should take care of yourselves. You should go do something healthy. You should Mm -hmm. do something good. And yet you are being slammed with three tests a week and you're studying all weekend and you're up late at night and uh, we're not really supported in that way. It's kind of this thing, oh, hey, you should do this, but it's not really logical at the time, yeah. given how much is on your plate. Yeah. Uh, and then even with, we said, you know, about three hours of nutrition education, I think people that care about nutrition in medical school are left to their own devices to get that information elsewhere. Yeah, that's interesting. So it seems like a, a little bit of a tough problem to to address if we're if we're saying that we want physicians to be you know competent like a lot of these uh, comments said we want really competent expert physicians and so there's a lot to a lot to give them a lot to teach them then how do you do that uh, and still give them space to be healthy I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> do you have an answer for this? I, well? <laughs> it's a complex answer. Yeah, it's a it's a something we really need to figure out because I understand. You know, I'm not on here saying, "Oh, we need to cut the curriculum in half," because we need to know these things. There's a benefit of sure. of learning these things, but there's not that space, like you said, to be healthy or exhibit these healthy behaviors or even the support. Um, You know, you go to the cafeteria at school, you can get a cheeseburger or a quesadilla, maybe a salad, but there's not, you, I would hope that the cafeteria would have healthier options, but they don't always. So I don't know. I think we need to rethink the structure as far as you're coming in doing 26 hours of work for a, for a whole week and studying Mm -hmm. nonstop. I don't know if that means spreading out the curriculum or getting rid of some of that stuff that's not so pertinent to clinical experience. I'm not sure what the answer is there, but it's something yeah. that a larger question that needs to be asked. Yeah, I can tell you that that medical school was one of the least healthy parts of my life in terms of uh, just how much uh, how much time I was able to allocate to just taking care of my body um, in in residency. I was. Uh, I was thinking, you know, maybe that things would get better, and uh, <laughs> and it turns out that uh, you know I hated when I hated it when people told me this when I was in medical school, but but it turns out residency actually is more demanding than medical school in many ways, um, and I was like, how could you even say that? There is nothing more demanding than medical school. Like <laughs> right. we're all about to explode so there's no way that it would be more demanding or else you know people would be exploding all over the place 
and uh and i think that uh i think that it is more demanding but you've also like leveled up like what you're able to take because you've been through medical school and so you're able to you know you're able to do 100 hour shifts you're able to do uh you know uh, a lot of this really emotionally rigorous stuff without uh without totally exploding although some people still do you know i saw sure. i saw some people really kind of fly off the rails a little bit in in their medical education process and um so it but would to, the, to that point if you had a patient come in and you're asking them about their life and their diet and they said i'm working 100 hour days and i'm on call all weekend and i was up all night any physician would say that is ludicrous you should not be doing that to your health right yet that is what almost everyone went through during residency exactly yeah so that's a that's something that I would really like to see be be different in the medical education process is how do we teach physicians how to te take care of themselves so they can help other people take care of themselves. So thank you for listening and we're going to be back with more after the break. You're listening to the Healthcare Questions show on 1100 KFNX the Pulse of Arizona. Welcome back to the Healthcare Questions Show. I'm your host, Dr. Kendrick. I'm here with medical student Kyle Sherwin, and we're talking about how the medical education system affects our healthcare system and how healthcare is delivered. And so we've talked a little bit about these, uh, these years of medical school, two years of a lot of classwork, mm -hmm. and then two years of, of what we call rotations. What, what are rotations? What does that mean? What are you doing these two years? Yeah, so in your third year, you have to spend a one-month rotation with all the different specialties. So it's like you spend a month with psychiatry, a month with OBGYN, a month with surgery, internal medicine, family medicine. Regardless of what months. you're going to do. So you, yeah. could be, you could be on your way to being an ophthalmologist, but you still got to spend a month delivering babies or something like that. Correct, okay. yeah. And then a month with psychiatry. I'm acting like uh, I don't know. I yeah, just right. did it a few years ago. <laughs> that's good, that's good. Um, <laughs> Hosting 101. <laughs> so, uh, and these are required to graduate medical school. And you really, sometimes you're in the hospital, sometimes you're in the outpatient setting in a private practice, but you're spending time with that doctor. And the the idea is that anything that doctor does, you're going to do with he or she. Okay. So you're going to go see patients with them. You're going to go to the hospital with them. You're going to deliver babies with them, like you said. So does everybody get the same, everybody get the same doctors? No. Yeah, it's it's different because we have 250 third year students going out into rotations and only 11 months to get all those done for that year, right? So you have to uh it's it's a little bit luck of the draw. Some of my friends will be sent to one OB-GYN and I'll be sent to the other. And and what influence do you think it has on each individual student? Do you, do you think they all have a pretty similar experience or, or do you think that, uh, that the experience changes the path of their future? Vastly different experiences. Just talking with friends, sharing stories. Everyone's got those couple preceptors that they loved. Oh, this, this woman taught me so much. This guy taught me so much. They showed me what it's like to be a physician. I, I want to be like them. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, 
I don't think this person cared about their patients at all. I'm not sure why this person was even a doctor. I would never run my practice like that. So you you do get molded uh, by these people you're with because, you know, you might have your own ideas of what you want to do and how you think their practice should be run, uh-huh. but you're just a medical student and you don't know anything about the real world. So you kind of learn from them of what that real world is like. You mean you're not going to tell me how I should run my practice? <laughs> No, no, I would never. I would never speak up. And then, so, you know, the good part of it is I've learned a lot of great things, but I also have learned what I don't want to do with my future as well. You kind of have to take that approach because you see a lot of good and bad. Yeah. So give me a couple examples of experiences you have that you think will actually change uh, what you want to do in the future. Yeah. So I spent time with an obesity medicine doctor and she was counseling patients a lot on losing weight. Uh-huh. And I just really liked her approach that she took with them and how she went about. Uh, she, you know, she would talk to everyone the same in a sense of here's how we're going to do that. Here's what I want to do. But she was very cognizant of what hangups they had in their personal life and and being malleable to what they wanted. If uh, If they did not like her diet and it was not working for them, then she would have them come up with their own diet and try uh-huh. that. And that was really cool to see because it was very patient led, you Interesting. know, um, and then, you know, some doctors on the flip side, the way they make their schedule, you know, they jam a bunch of patients in, in the morning at a certain time and make people wait in the waiting room. And it gives me anxiety just thinking about when <laughs> we're behind. And so you kind of start to see, Oh, I would never schedule this way. And it kind of, makes you think about how you want to run your practice in the future. Well, that's, that's interesting. And it, and it totally brings me back. I'm, I'm thinking about the doctors that helped train me and how, you know, some of them, some of them, I felt like really trained me for the better. And some of them, I learned some things that I didn't want to do from, uh, one of the doctors that comes to mind is, uh, there was this, this, uh, pediatrician that I worked with in, uh, in Nevada and, um, she didn't have any kids and, uh, she, I had, I had two children at the time yeah. and, and she was giving some advice to somebody about, you know, what they should do with their, with their kids. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that, that, that really works logistically. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and she was, she got so mad at me and, and, you know, to be fair to her, I've always been kind of like a, a questioner. Like, um, I asked a lot of questions and said, Hey, you can you back up what you're saying? Because I need to know if this is just your opinion or if you have evidence that will support this. And a lot of doctors didn't like it when I asked those types of questions, Sure, but, uh, she was so mad at me. Um, and for asking this question about, you know, some of the advice that she'd given and, and uh she she ended up just like not talking to me for the rest of the month (laughs) i was like i would go see a patient and then she would go see him and we didn't have any interaction it was a really really awkward month but yeah so you can i kind of alluded to this earlier but that's when you can get uh, beaten down a little bit because you have this idea in your head of what you want right but you aren't able to implement that for so long that you're out there and even myself i kind of start to question sometimes could I really run a practice the way I think I want to run a practice? Am I being naive? No one, no one is really doing it the way I envision it. Is there mm-hmm. a reason no one's doing it that way? And uh, if you're not careful, you can talk yourself out of your own vision because you're just molded by these people you're with. 
Yeah, it is really interesting. I, I remember when I decided I was going to do this, this totally different type of practice, this direct primary care practice that I do, I had, I, I had multiple people, mentors, that told me it was just not a good idea. And in fact, um, you know, uh, one of my favorite mentors, after I, I got up and presented, um, presented some of these ideas about this practice to uh, my class, he got af- up after me and told the whole class how like wrong I was and how that these, these ideas I had were not good. And so it's really interesting uh, how influential people can be you know, in your training years, you know, I, I, I did choose to not follow his advice. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, uh, it, it does have a, a huge impact on you as, as you go forward. Well, and it's a delicate balance because I think about this often, um, you know, some of the great innovators in history, they were always doubted. They were always shouted down by mm-hmm. the establishment, right? They were always, uh, some in the old days, they would be put in jail, tarred and yeah. feathered, whatever. But those are the people that, after all that was done, they left a lasting impact on society. They innovated. They did something new and different. And now they're celebrated yeah. by history, but they were not celebrated in their time. Yeah. And uh, the first example of that that comes to my mind is a guy named Semmelweis. You probably heard about this guy. He, was, he delivered babies and, uh, and he, he figured out that if he washed his hands after going to the morgue, and coming back to deliver more babies, that he his rate of infection and the rate of, of death of the mother went way down. And, um, and he tried to share these findings with his colleagues, and he was, he was booed off the stage. Uh, he, he ended up uh, li- li- living in poverty in the end and, and relative anonymity. And, um, and he was, he had one of the secrets, one of the, the most important secrets to changing medicine forever. And, and nobody listened to him. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to only be a nonconformist. Um, I don't want to be a nonconformist just for the sake of being a nonconformist. But, uh, but when we talk about medical education and we talk about um, the current medical system, I do want to make sure that I am open to ideas that might change for the better how medicine is being delivered. And so I don't want to be one of the guys that that boos um, the person with the new good idea um, just because it doesn't fit, you know, what I think is, is the right way to do medicine. And so, um, that's something that, that you and I have already talked about a little bit is like, are we on the right track and, um, and are there significant ways that we can improve what we're doing? Yeah. I think it's healthy to always question that and question your own questioning because, you know, then you don't want to just be one of those people booing. You want to actually be led to the right answer. Absolutely. Well, come check us out at arcfamilyhealth.com. And uh, you've been listening to the Healthcare Questions Show on 1100 KFNX, the Pulse of Arizona. Thank you.